Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening, David Clayton, is a professor at St. Thomas More College of the Liberal Arts in Merrimack, New Hampshire, where he has designed the Way of Beauty program, which focuses on the link between Catholic culture and the liturgy. Uh, he also wrote, co-produced, and presented the 13-part TV series, The Way of Beauty, shown on Catholic TV in 2010 and 2011. Before moving to the U.S., he taught at the Merivale Institute in Birmingham, England, where he designed, along with his staff at the Institute, their art theory course. His artistic training is in both Byzantine iconographic style and in Western classical naturalism, which he studied in Florence, Italy. David was received into the Catholic Church in London in 1993. Please join me in welcoming David Clayton. Thank you very much for the, uh, the kind introduction. It's a real pleasure to be asked to speak here today. And um, gosh, what a lot of people. This is great. Um, I'm going to be talking today. Here's the title of the talk, Beauty, Cosmos, Liturgy, and Culture. And I wonder, could we just turn the, the lights down? So, thank you. Um, now, it's quite a complicated talk. I'm trying to organize this. We're going to be going off in various directions. And so what I thought I'd do is just explain how this, these, thing, these words hang together at the start, so that if suddenly you ask yourself, why has he suddenly started to talk about this? you'll realize what the flow of the, the lecture is. So I think a couple of weeks ago there was a, a lecture on the nature of beauty and how it is a transcendental. Um, in other words, it's something that exists uh, in the object. It's an objective quality and something that exists in all that, that is. Um, and therefore, if that is the nature of beauty, assuming we think it's something that's good as well, um, it means that we can analyze um, anything to try and ask ourselves, why is it beautiful? If it's simply my personal reaction, then you should be analyzing me. But if, if we're interested in why an object is beautiful, then we can look at that and try and ascertain what it is. And if we can find the answer, then I can do, create other things that are beautiful too. So that was the view of the ancients, and they decided to look at the cosmos, in other words, the whole of creation. The word cosmos in Greek uh, means both order and beauty. We get the word cosmetic from cosmos. Um, and so they felt there was a consensus. They, they couldn't prove it, but there's a consensus that the cosmos was beautiful. Because if we look at that, look at creation... Um, as we call it, say today, if you look at nature or the wilderness, perhaps, um, that it's beautiful. And if we analyze it, then we can maybe discover the secret. So they started to look at the 
the rhythms and patterns of the cosmos, and uh, also consider how we perceive it. And not just um, the the natural world uh, visually, but also hourly, things like music and harmony. Um, how is it that, that we see these things beautiful and then beautif- as beautiful? And then what they tried to do was account for these numerically. So they actually developed um, an order described numerically that describes beauty. But remember that starting assumption that beauty is in what you're looking at, that allows us then to analyze it, and the standard that they have in mind is the cosmos. And they just say, there's a consensus. We'll just take it as an assumption that people see the natural world, they think it's beautiful, and then we'll analyze that. We'll make that our standard. Then, because we've produced this system of numbers that are in relation to each other, that describe the patterns, if you like, and the symmetries of the cosmos, we can pattern our own activities on the cosmos. In other words, our culture can participate in the beauty of the cosmos. And if, whether or not you agree with that, it's just, again, it's just an assumption that uh, this can be translated from one to the other. But ask yourself, when you go to a, a city that, such as Florence or Oxford, for example, where I lived before I came here, where the buildings are built, even though they're way after the ancient Greeks, they're built on the um, assumption that you can translate the beauty of the cross into the beauty of man, um, where do you go and look? Do you go and look at the old buildings in the centre of town that are built on that assumption? Or do you go to the industrial estate on the edge of town, uh, which was uh, built after the, on the, in the time since they discarded this idea in the 20th century? Um, if you go to Florence, everybody goes to the old buildings in the centre. Why do we look at these? Because th- their t- tourists are attracted because they're beautiful. So I'd say there's there's still a pretty good consensus that those principles, those assumptions are good. Beauty, whatever people say, if you ask them, even the tourists going to Florence may say something different, but their actions, in a sense, speak louder than words. That beauty is in the object, therefore we can analyse the object, the cosmos, we can pattern our own activities on that analysis, and therefore... If what we're saying is true, our culture can be beautiful too. Okay, where does the liturgy come into it? Well, for the, you might ask the question, why? Why bother? Why do we want a beautiful culture? Why uh, do we see it as beautiful? And for the Christian, there is an assumption that the whole of the cosmos is made for us, for man, to see. Man is the pinnacle of creation. And he is made to perceive it as beautiful. The, the farthest star in the universe um, is there so that we can observe it and see it in its setting relative to others, in harmonious placement. Um, we can see the beauty of the universe, the beauty of the cosmos. Why would he do this? Why would he make us respond in this way? Well, one, because the heavens proclaim the glory of the Lord, that uh, it's raises our souls to con- up to contemplate the, cr- the creator. If you like, the creation bears the thumbprint of the creator, um, and just the awe and wonder of it makes us want to give praise. Anyone who 
has read the Canticle of Daniel, which in the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, the way it's set out at the moment, is sung on uh, week one uh, in morning prayer in Lourdes and and the morning prayer of all feast days it lists the whole of creation uh, all that's uh, not just visible creation but invisible, the angels and the saints in heaven and it says give praise to the Lord, all the stars all the snow, all the ice give praise to the Lord well it doesn't literally give praise to the Lord a, a mountain for example but what it does is it directs our praise and So we are made to respond in this way. This is good. But also, those rhythms and patterns of the cosmos are there to tell us how to do our activity or a particular aspect of our activity, of our culture, you might say, and that is our worship. Man is made to worship God, to uh, give praise to the Father through the Son in the spirit and when he does so in the public worship of the church the liturgy that is the end for which he is made Um, supernaturally he steps into the heavenly liturgy which is the praise of God the father in heaven by all his angels and saints and how do we know we're doing it in harmony with all the angels and saints well because the patterns of our liturgy are based on the patterns of the cosmos Uh, very simply for example and we're going to go into more examples later um, Easter is calculated according to the phases of the moon Uh, we order time according to the the passage of the earth around the sun or the sun around the earth depending on how you look at it and we can have a debate about that if you wish Um, but the point is that everything is made from our point of view this is the centre of the cosmos because we're here and we want to see it. Everything is made relative to us to be seen. And the, the most important thing we can order in our activity in relation to that is our worship. Because the liturgy is the, the reason we're made. We're ultimately, our, desti- our destiny is to be in union with God in heaven, participating in this dynamic exchange of love. Um, and liturgy is what you do <laughs> that's how you do it <laughs> and in, in this life that is how we can supernaturally step into the next um, and by degrees be transformed actually be div- divinized be transformed move along that path and the liturgy is both the, the, the summit of human existence we're told this is what we're aiming for it, it marks the uh, standard which we're aiming for but it is also the source. It is the, the liturgy, our worship in this life, uh, is the source of grace that transforms us and gives us the means, if you like, to be able to reach that goal. This is important, that we actually understand the, how the cosmos is structured, how it is beautiful, um, and furthermore, the culture what influences us most greatly between, uh, shall we say, between Mass or between the div- uh, when praying the Divine Office, when I'm out in the world, um, every aspect of the culture, this building, uh, the design of the road signs, how you design these bottles, everything can be, if we choose, can be made to conform to this cosmic beauty and then, therefore, actually affect us in the way that the cosmos does. 
plastic bottle of water, give praise to the Lord. Oh, all you plastic bottles of water. There's no reason why we can't do that if we choose. And historically, it wouldn't have occurred to anyone who was designing anything not to do so because they understood the importance of this. If I um, focused on the, the, the liturgy and then I go out and the rhythms and the patterns and the designs of things is in conflict with this, it's going to undermine what I'm trying to do. It's the, the very principle, remember, of the, the cosmos. It's made to elevate my soul. Well, man's work can do the opposite. He has free will. He can raise things up to the same height, and actually through grace, um, higher than the natural world as we see it, which has fallen. Um, so the culture of man really can be more beautiful than nature and have a stronger effect. Um, this is why the church asked for us to evangelize the culture uh, as much as the people <laughs> evangelize the culture because this opens up people's hearts to receive the word and therefore to enable them to accept the word of God and be transformed themselves. So, popes, over the, particularly in the 20th century, pull it, ripping their hair out if they have any, um, 1999, John Paul II wrote a letter to artists. This, this is important to me because it inspired me when I read it in 1999 to actually go and do something about this. Uh, he called for a new epiphany of beauty. Epiphany is a wholesale change in outlook. Um, and what he's saying, remember this is addressed to artists, well, reading between the lines, he's saying, artists, at the moment, everything you do is ugly. Otherwise, he wouldn't be asking for a new epiphany. He doesn't say, just, can you just you know, raise it a notch or two? He's saying, we need a complete change in what's going on so that it, the, the culture of man is in harmony with the, the cosmos and in, in, in harmony with the, the liturgical principle. Why? Because beauty directs our souls to the creator. Now, how can we do this? We must first be reunited with the traditions from which we come if we are to produce the art of the church of today that, um, that, is, that is, has the glories of the past. So this statement at the end is my own sense of what we must do. We must look at the past. And in his letter, John Paul II lists all the figurative traditions. Um, now, I don't think he's asking for us to reproduce precisely what um, was produced in the past. Uh, what he's saying is that, uh, that these traditions are living traditions. We must learn what it is that allowed these people to produce these great, gl these glorious works of the past and create things today that are consistent with those that speak to people today. We need a, a popular culture that is good. Popular culture and a beautiful culture are not contradictory things. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, it's the task of the artist. I'm an artist. And the reason that people aren't climbing over themselves, and I assure you they're not, to commission my work, um, is very simple. It's not what I might think, because there isn't, people aren't being educated, they don't appreciate. It's because I don't produce art that's good enough. If I understood the traditions properly, if I really knew how to speak to people today, it would be so much more powerful 
than what exists. And that's the task we have. Um, and I believe it's possible. We have man, we have God. He's, he's supplying inspiration to artists. Uh, it may need a generation or two. I'm hoping that I can play a part in allowing the next generation to do it. Who knows, before I die, I might produce something myself, but I, I doubt it. Um, okay. So how does Christian art fulfill its purpose? I'm going to talk about this briefly. I don't want to go into the transcendentals too much, because I think you've heard about this, but it is good. It reflects truth. And it can reflect truth in two ways, not just the content. We would expect um, uh, 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 the subject matter, what you paint. So, for example, in a church to show Christ on the cross and to do it in a way that is true to the Gospels, for example. But it's also the style. There's a reason why we can recognize art that belongs to the iconographic tradition or the Baroque tradition or the Gothic tradition, which are listed as authentic liturgical traditions by Pope Benedict, and distinguish them from the art of Andy Warhol, stylistically. Um, and that is because the very form of the art participates in this cosmic beauty. Now, for the figurative traditions, I'm going to talk about those on Sunday. What I'm going to talk about now is something else. Um, before, before we do that, let's just look at beauty. One way that was um, explained to me that just helped me a little bit uh, is this statement, I like it is not the same as it is good. Okay. Um, we have to be prepared. We're usually prepared to do that with food. You know, we understand that the things we like aren't necessarily the things that are good for us. And uh, we decide first if it is good, and then we select what we like. Well, usually. Okay. This, these are a series of adverts that were in England. I can remember them when I grew up for fresh cream, for whipped cream. And so... The idea was, well, it's a temptation, but, you know, it's, it's so good. You know, naughty but nice was the, the advertisement. So here's the Mona Lisa tempted by a cream bun. Um, and that's the thing about temptation, isn't it? It's very tempting. The, uh, but through all of that, we know deep down what's good for us and that what we like is not necessarily what is good. We're reluctant to believe it, generally, with beauty. We're inclined to argue with everybody that this, is, this work of art is great because I like it. I have the taste. Okay? Now, well, that might be so, um, and it's very difficult to disprove somebody, but we have to be prepared to look at ourselves and think it might not be. This is where you look to tradition to guide you. So you tend to look... To, the, the right thing is to look to tradition first... See whether these principles, which can be isolated, are fulfilled. And then you say, do I like it? Here are the, the transcendentals, as they were defined for me. Unity, goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, they're properties of being. Everything that exists has these things, even beyond the material world, um, Beauty is the radiance of being. It's what's, it allows something to speak to us of itself. And therefore, there's something in us which can grasp that. Um, it tends to be, uh, the language of it, therefore, tends to talk about light or color because it's communicating its existence to us at a distance. This is its beauty. And Thomas Aquinas 
for those who are interested in this, uh, highlighted three aspects of beauty, three properties, integrity, due proportion, and claritas. And they're just the radiance of the other three um, transcendentals. So claritas, clarity. Does it look like what it's supposed to be? Uh, if, it's, if I'm telling you it's a man, does it have two arms, two legs, and a, and a head, for example? It's as simple as that. Um, so integrity is the radiance of unity. Integrity is, is it uh, true to what it ought to be? Uh, and due proportion, and this is something that's easier to grasp, is, is each part in the right relationship with every other part within it? So you might think of integrity as relating to the harmony between what it, what it is and what it ought to be, the, the idea of it, uh, before, it was conceived, before it was made, and then due proportion is within the object itself. Is there a perfect relationship? And so much of beauty is about relationship. One thing relating to another. So just keep that in mind. This is a house in the village in England where my parents live, a little village called Williston in Cheshire. Uh, the pebble dash effect I don't think is genuine. That's, that's surface. You just throw cement against the house and then throw pebbles against it. I think that's a modern thing. But what I want to show you is, first of all, this was built in the 17th century. And it's a very, very simple design. It, um, for the most part, it's as a child would draw a house. You have a door in the middle, a chimney at the top with the smoke going up like that, um, and then window, window, point chimney going up. What is interesting, though, is look at these windows. Do you see how they're different sizes? And you get a sense. First of all, there's three stories and not two. Um, and secondly, you get a sense of this a rhythmical progression, a relationship that... The relationship of that to that somehow echoes the relationship of that to that. Okay, and that's what proportion is. It's actually um, a consonant relationship going right the way back to the ancients uh, between two ratios. So you have two relationships, and the relationship between the relationships is consonant, is harmonious. Um, and whether or not you think it is, you just say, well, does this look like a beautiful house? Does it seem pleasing? Does it sit well in its environment? This is in Beacon Hill in Boston. Uh, this will be built, I don't know precisely, probably 19th century. Um, and do you see you have the same idea with the windows here? It's, other than that, it's a very s simple design. These houses are as expensive as any you'll find in Boston. So it probably makes them pretty expensive. Um, and what makes them desirable, I would say, is the beauty of them, the elegance of them. And there are a number of things which uh, allow, that, allow this house to be elegant, but so much of it is just this rhythmical pattern, the proportion which runs through the house. And so this is, I don't know, 200 years after the first, and we go right the way through the centuries from the ancient Greeks right the way up through to 1900. Here's 1850 in Oxford. The Randolph Hotel is the, uh, the most famous hotel in the city of Oxford in England. And we have one, two, three, four, 
and then the, the servants at the top have to stoop in their rooms as they enter. Uh, but you can see, again, that rhythmical relationship going all the way up. First is to the second, as the second is to the third, and we get a, a sense of that progression. They're not the same. They're not equally spaced. Okay, I don't know if anyone can spot the modern building here. Um, right, this is on the same street in Oxford as that last building, the hotel. This, ironically, is the mathematics department of the university. And uh, if you just compare these two, this, no one's going to cross the Atlantic to go and see this house. It might have been built in the early 20th century, but at least they are trying to conform to the proportion. You can see that if it's not the window size, through this here, they're trying to create a sense of something bigger and then the smallest at the top. Okay? And it's three layers as well. Not so marked in this that they were now into the early 20th century, these things are beginning to go. But by the time you get to the 1960s or post-Second World War, everything's upside down. There's no reference to it at all. And architects consciously threw this out, starting with the Bauhaus, really, in 1900. And they knew what they were doing. They knew that they were rejecting a whole tradition relating to a worldview. Unfortunately, they knew more than the Christian architects at the time who just happily accepted all of this. Um, they knew that they were trying to destroy the faith in doing this. Here's the same street in Oxford. Notice it, um, it's called St. Giles is the name of the street. The uh, thing to notice about this is, so you see how one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe we just see the seventh house there. They're all different. I, I don't know what the time frame is for this, but probably 18th century, 19th century, early 20th century. In their own way, they all have this traditional, oh, sorry, traditional proportion. Um, and they're not trying to, to replicate it. They're, they're, this, for example, this house here, they've got about this, this much room left to right. They obviously need a, a, quite a big place. So what do they do? They just go up. And when it's higher than the others, they just have a blank wall here. They're, they're not trying to make it nod in any direction. Yet when you see these houses together... They don't look as though they're clashing at all. They're a huge variety of styles. It's not as if the architects are bound, are constrained. But why do they all sit together? Well, the answer is that what they have in common is this cosmic principle of harmony, of due proportion, appropriate to a house. It's expressed in different ways. It's applied in different ways, as it always will be in different times and different, uh, different eras. But... They all seem happily to sit next to each other because they're, 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 it's as though they're sitting on the rim of a wheel and the spokes all point inwards to what Pope Benedict calls the mind of the creator, which is expressed in, these cos in the cosmic beauty. Okay, so just to summarize, in the classical world, uh, beauty is a reflection of harmony and order, and there is a consensus that the cosmos is beautiful. And they investigated the patterns of music, even the abstract world of mathematics. They looked at internal patterns and harmonies within numbers. 
then you have things called perfect numbers, square numbers, triangular numbers. Um, even within that, you get beauty. And they start to see that the, the world conforms to these patterns that, are ex- that seem beautiful even in the abstract, in the ideal world of numbers. Uh, and they look at the rhythms of nature uh, to find a, 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 prin- a set of principles for beauty. And for the church fathers, for the Christians, they incorporated all of that. Um, But there's an additional thing here. The ordering principle of creation for them is love. Harmonious relationships, if you like, which participate in and ultimately express, uh, as as I said, Pope Benedict in his book, The Spirit of Liturgy, says they reflect the mind of the creator. Uh, You might say the, the beauty that exists in the perfect perfectly harmonious relationships between the persons of the Trinity, which is perfect love. And um, all point to the heavenly order and the heavenly liturgy. Just a little aside there, the Pope talks about this in his book. He says that for uh, for the ancients, they lived their lives according to the stars, just as we do today. We have a lunar solar calendar, Uh, We have months that are linked to the the moon, just about. Everything is sort of modified slightly to fit in. Um, And they noticed that, for example, the seasons were affected by the passages of the planets uh, across the sky, and they made this connection. It it enabled them to build a calendar to work out when to plant, when to harvest, and to predict things. Uh, Of course, it couldn't be done perfectly, so they always felt that these... uh, these planets that they saw, these objects in the sky, they felt that they were the cause of the seasons. And because they occasionally inflicted nastiness on us, that they were uh, rather uh, unpredictable, uh, in some senses uh, imperfect people, uh, personalities, if I can put it like that. Um, And, of course, it's the classic sort of fallacy of two things happen at once to assume that one causes the other. And you get it in statistics all the time. Virtually every newspaper article that says this causes this is making that mistake. Um, And the ancient Greeks did it too. For the Christian, instead of actually attributing personalities to those things in the sky, um, the, the stars in the sky became a heavenly symbol of the angels and the saints. So you would paint the signs of the zodiac or the stars on the ceilings of, um, of churches to uh, highlight that symbolism. All right, I'm going to look at some of these numerical principles now, um, just, just one in particular that links uh, the beauty of the cosmos, if you like, the, and the liturgy. This is a very famous um, fresco in the Vatican done by Raphael, who worked around 1500 to 1520, something like that. And it's called the School of Athens, and it shows all the great philosophers of ancient Greece who, through reason, anticipated uh, uh, the gospel in some senses. And uh, as far as one could, shall we say, without revelation. And in the centre you have Aristotle and Plato. Plato, who's interested in the world of ideals, is pointing up. Aristotle, who emphasises the reality of the material world and the ability of our senses to perceive what is true, um, is pointing down. 
uh, if you go here, we have the figure of Pythagoras. Pythagoras was described by Plato as being somebody who developed musical theory and number theory and believed very strongly in the, in the, the idea that number was the ordering principle of the cosmos. They were talking about, he lived around 550 BC or something, so some years before Plato. Okay, now just see that chalkboard there, somebody's holding that. That's a blow up of that, and this is the diagram that's on there. Remember, this is a painting by Raphael in 1500. He's painting his perception or the perception at that time of the ancient Greek philosophers. And this is the diagram that I have drawn that corresponds to this. And what this actually shows, it's a diagram for musical harmony, uh, the fundamental harmonies. So where do we get this from? If you have a stringed instrument and you pluck a note, an, an open note, you have whatever, whatever note it happens to be, and then you fret it halfway along, so the ratio of the lengths is one to two, the note is an octave higher. So that ratio one to two becomes associated with a pleasing sound of an octave. One note, the same note but higher. An octave higher. And similarly, you can, so there's one to two, for the fundamental harmonies of a perfect fifth and a perfect fourth. So there are seven notes in a scale and the eighth so you go from C right the way through to the next C. So the next C is eight notes higher. So it's simultaneously the last of the previous and the first of the next. Then the fi a fifth is the first note to the fifth note, and the fourth is the first note to the fourth note. And if you just play them on the piano, again, there is a consensus. When you hear these notes, everybody, no matter what culture they're in, no matter where they come, they hear these combinations as beautiful. Okay. And so these are the, the ratios expressed numerically of, if you like, lengths of pipe, that if you bang them, the notes you'll produce would be in these ratios. Uh, if they produce a fifth, they'll be in the ratio two to three, a four, three to four, an octave one to two. Now, they expressed it in these numbers because, um, so you have six to nine is the same as two to three, six to 12 is the same as one to two, 6 to 8 is the same as 3 to 4. 8 to 12, going that way, is 2 to 3. Uh, nine, eight, 9 to 12 is 3 to 4. Now, why did they multiply it up in this diagram? It's simply because it, then it allows them to place, have the additional ratio of 8 to 9, which is just a single note. And that's the basic building block of a scale, a single interval. And then they love the fact that numerically these fundamental musical harmonies are the first four numbers, one, two, three, four, one to two, two to three, three to four, and they used to display it in this diagram called the tetractis, uh, which almost had a sort of uh, religious symbolism for the Pythagoreans. Um, and they noticed that when you add the numbers up, they add up to ten, which for us is a significant number because we've got... Ten fingers and ten toes. And so here we have one, two, three, four. This is in Raphael's diagram. And then the X there, saying so they add up to ten. Okay. Now, 
I didn't get this from Raphael. I actually got this from uh, a translation that I read of a manuscript written by someone called Boethius, who wrote in the 6th century something called De Musica, about music. And he produced this diagram. And he said he got it from Plato, Aristotle, and other and Pythagoras and other learned thinkers. And he listed not just uh, in, in his works, not just this uh, harmonious proportion, but actually ten others, or ten in total. So there are quite a lot of these, and he talks about where he gets them from. But so we're just focusing on one here. Um, but the point I'm making is that this is something that ran through the tradition. It goes back to the ancient Greeks. It was brought into the Christian tradition by figures such as Boethius, this philosopher from the 6th century, and Augustine. Uh, and we know that Raphael knew about it because here he is painting it. Uh, Palladian architecture, incidentally, uses these sort of proportions as well. Um, and that becomes the basis for Georgian architecture and American colonial architecture, hence the houses in Boston. So here they are from music, one to two, two to three, three to four. There are others, but these are the fundamental harmonies. Right, so there's a consensus that these are good, these are beautiful. Let's now think about um, time. So in our worship, we go from week to week. And as we know, there are seven days in the week, not eight. And we go from Sunday to Sunday, excuse me. (coughs) And what happens? There are seven days in the week because the seven days of creation are listed in Genesis. As Pope Benedict says, it's also a half phase of the moon, the idealized um, waxing and waning and waxing again of the moon is 28 days which is also, incidentally, a perfect number, so it's a good cycle for, to sing the psalms on, for example. Um, but So th- th- we, we live according to this seven-day cycle. But, of course, for those who understand what the, how the Church Fathers described this, the Sabbath, of course, for the Jews was on Saturday. The Christians moved it to the Sunday to signify the eighth day of the week, um, which corresponds to the, the new age, if you like, the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ that enable, ushers in the, the whole new age in salvation history um, and ultimately enables us to reach that goal of heaven. Um, and so the week starts, you have a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then 8 is simultaneously the last day of the previous week and the first of the next. So it is, in a way, is instead of going round in a, in a straight line or even in a circle, we go round, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then the eighth, we, certainly we move along, but we're new, going into a new a vector shift upwards. Uh, we're ushering in the new age. And what's being described here is not a, an enclosed circle, but a helix. That as we go round, we're corkscrewing up to heaven. So this is why when we have Sunday, we just say, surely, you know, we, we, haven't we done Sunday before? You know, we, we come every Sunday because it's a fresh new day. Um, and so you have this principle of seven plus one. We get return, and does this sound familiar? This is the octave all over again. It's from C to C. 
Um, also, in, our, in the liturgy during the course of the day, the psalmist says, seven times a day, your Lord, and once during the watches of the night. And in his rule, St. Benedict lists seven offices, and then the eighth one is separate but added on. And so within the course of the day, if we followed that cycle of the psalms, you get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So you have this helix in the day, a helix in the week. And then in the course of the year, you have, of course, Easter being the, the central point in which the whole thing revolves. And the whole cycle of the seasons moves forward in a grand helix. And all we have to do is conform to the liturgy. And this is taking us up to heaven. And it's all expressed in musical harmony and things that we hear. Now, think about how amazing it is, or it is to me, that you can have a musical scale that when you hear it, you go... And forgive the singing. But that eighth note is the same as the first note, yet it's different. This is purely a human perception. I don't know if we know if dogs hear it like that. This, this is how we perceive it. And the, so the beauty of music is a sign, a cosmic symbol, uh, uh, reflects the ordering of the liturgy. And as we know, it doesn't just come from music. The, the, the Bible, Scripture, supports this. This is ultimately where the, how the liturgy is ordered within the year. So everything is reinforcing these principles, the cosmos, the liturgy, and the heavenly principle, the word of God, if you like. Um, also, what do we have at these big feast days? At Easter, we have Easter Sunday, and then you have the octave of Easter. Eight Sundays, if you like. Eight days of eight days. Uh, you have that for all the feast days. This musical principle of beauty is running through it. So if we can form our culture and, uh, and our liturgy to this, uh, the two are just, one is supporting the other, informing the other. Um, and if one is, in, is out of sync with the other, something has to give. Uh, and ultimately, if we don't change the culture, the culture will change us. And that is really what we're charged to do with the Second Vatican Council. We can't just retreat into a ghetto and then try and pretend it's not there and keep the world out, because we can't. That, that ultimately, we have to go out into the world and engage with the culture and make it reflect what we have. Um, how is this reflected in ordinary things? Well, here is a painting by Raphael. Remember, we know that he knew this stuff. We've just seen his fresco. Um, here is the Mons Crucifixion. It's in the National Gallery in London. Um, and I was, I've seen it many times. It's about, I don't know, from the floor to this beam or something like this. Grand painting, very beautiful. And um, I was just sitting one day and, and someone was giving a talk about it and I thought, these feet look strange. The funny angle of the, the angels, why are they doing that? And then I noticed that actually there's a shape traced out here. Can you see that? And it's an octagon. Okay, so he's ordered the composition according to an octagon. Now, why would he do this? Well, this is a painting of the eighth day. So this is due proportion. It's appropriate to what it is. Now, this is not a secret sign, so that those who are in the know say, ah, there we go, it's the octagon, I need a Raphael's building. He's doing this because he believes 
appropriate to what it is and it will communicate to us at a deep intuitive level what he's trying to say. We are built, remember, to hear the octave. Everybody does, just as we're built, he believes, to see it, whether or not we're picking it up consciously. Um, And Raphael did a lot of this uh, symbolic geometry in his composition. Um, And whether or not you think it works is, ask yourself, does it... Is it beautiful? Does it seem good? Or do you want to pray for it? Is it appropriate to the liturgy? Um, Just to reinforce this idea of due proportion, an octagon is good for a painting of the crucifixion. It would be good for a baptistry, not so good for a cowshed. That's overkill. So you don't tend to see octagonal cowsheds. And if you do see one, it just looks absurd. So another thing we can think about. Um, remember we talked about this idea that there are three layers in this house. Um, in music, so this is, never mind the liturgy and the cosmos and Augustine and Boethus, so if you go to music school now, they will teach you that a two, two notes is harmonious, I think strictly it might be called an interval, I forgot what they call it, but a chord needs three notes. And so I've asked musical people, why do you always define a chord as three notes? And they said, well, because if you just have two, you don't know whether it's a major or a minor chord. There's another one you could put in there. Those who know a lot about music can immediately correct me. But um, what they tell me is that there is a sense, just as we listen to it, that it needs that additional note, that somehow it's not full unless you have three present. Um, And this is consistent with the idea, this definition of proportion that it's the consonant relationship of two ratios, uh, is pre-Christian. Okay, this goes right back to the, uh, the classical times. Now, in order, therefore, to have proportion, you need two relationships minimum. You can have more. Which means you need three objects minimum. One, two, three. Okay, you actually have, if you have three, you have three relationships, but... If you only have two, you just have one relationship between them. It's just an interval. Now, it can be good, and, you know, if if you don't have the funds for the third story, you can build a nice, perfect fifth of a house, if you like, but it's not a full major chord of a three-layer house. Um, And I always think that it's interesting, of course, that perfect beauty itself, beauty itself is God, and there are three persons in perfect loving relationship with each other. How else can we do this? Uh, this is just me intuitively just drawing with, in watercolour, or actually in egg tempera, just with a brush on a piece of paper, three lines. And I've just tried to make one successively longer than the next and turning at an angle but in such a way that you get a sense of rhythmical progression okay so I have no idea mathematically what they are just I just try and do that and I was taught to do that by my icon painting teacher Aidan Hart he he always said do this even if it means distorting slightly the naturalism or the reality of what what you're actually seeing because it will lend a grace and a beauty to the object which you're painting. This is not by... It looks like it's Bernini. It isn't. It's, it's a contemporary Bernini called Algardi. But do you see these lines here? Okay? 
Now, he is not sculpting that as he sees it. He's imposing on this, this rhythmical progression, and he's actually, because it was the practice of the day, making these deep so that the shadows are darker and so that your eye picks them up. And he wants it to have a grace and a vigor and a beauty. And he's, as an in, an intuitive way, he's building this due proportion, this cosmic principle, even into the composition of a bust here of this figure. And you can see it in iconographic art, you can see it in Gothic art, um, all the way through. And I actually, when I was studying in Florence, um, you practice by doing cast drawings. Uh, so you, in charcoal, you draw plaster casts of great works. And one of them, I was doing a cast of a bust. It wasn't this one, it was one by Bernini. And as I looked at it, I noticed that Bernini had all these rhythmical cuts in it. And I just thought, I can't possibly hope to replicate precisely what he's done. It's almost as if you could pick any line here and then any other, and then you'd find a third somewhere that just completed that rhythm, right just traced across the surface in all directions. Um, So I looked at it and thought, right, I can't hope to do this. So when I do the drawing, I'm going to create my own set of rhythmical cuts that correspond broadly to what I see, but in effect, they're novel, they're original to my drawing, which is an entity in itself, distinct from what I'm actually looking at. The teacher came around, and he normally, you know, we were, the training there is to train the eye. And so all the critiques are about this is wrong, this is wrong. You do, you might spend five weeks, I once spent, on one cast drawing, just altering, altering, altering. Um, And he looked at it and said, wow, he said, you've got natural Baroque rhythm. And he was referring to these cuts. And I didn't have the heart to say, well, actually, I'm doing what I was taught in iconographic art. This is iconographic rhythm. And it's a principle of beauty that runs through art and architecture, as we see, and ultimately points to the cosmos and the liturgy. So heaven is the invisible standard here that unites all these things, going across time, different places. Um, anything that has this cosmic beauty is ultimately pointing us to the heavenly principle. And is there, why do we do this? Because we want to order our worship. We are made to worship the Father through the Son, in the Spirit, in liturgy. That is our, the reason for our existence. This is the, the, the ultimate joy that we're made for, and it's the source of joy in this life. Okay, now, this is from The Spirit of the Liturgy, a little book by Cardinal Ratzinger, as was Pope Benedict XVI. The Enlightenment pushed faith. So we're now talking uh, around the 18th century ideas really starting to take hold in the 19th century. Pushed faith into a kind of intellectual and even social ghetto. Contemporary culture turned away from the faith and trod another path so that faith took flight in historicism the copying of the past, or else attempted compromise and lost itself in resignation and cultural abstinence. Okay, so, first of all, there's been a crisis in the culture since the Enlightenment. This is in a book about the liturgy. He's directly, in this book, making the connection between the liturgy and the culture. Um, If the liturgy 
if the culture is off, and we have to, this is important, we must address this. We can't, uh, where are we are, we can't hang out in a social ghetto keeping the world around because ultimately it'll just die. Okay, this says that the answer lies in the liturgy. There were problems in the liturgy going back to the early 19th century, is what he's talking about. So the liturgical reform started around this time. Around the same period, you get figures such as Newman, beginning of the 19th century, talking about how we deal with the Enlightenment, how we address the Enlightenment. And the liturgical reform movement, which culminated in Vatican II, started around this period. Okay? And I, I don't know if we need to get into the discussion of Vatican II, but the implementation was not in the spirit of what the Pope would want. And, but the problems didn't begin then. The problems began then. What do we mean by historicism? This is a flaw where, in our desire to say there's something wrong, we have to look at the past. We just simply copy without understanding. If only we did what Bernini did, everything would be right. That's not what a living tradition is. A living tradition understands its past. We must look at the past, but it creates a new. It's, it, it's always producing something which speaks to everybody today. And it is a popular, powerful culture. Um, in the next lecture, I'm going to talk about the Baroque and how the art of the Catholic Counter-Reformation that began in the liturgy uh, became the model for all art outside, landscape, portrait, and then spread across to the Protestant countries as well. They justified it. They didn't say we're taking the art of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. They developed their own um, justification for it. But why did they do that? They saw it and they thought, that is so beautiful, so powerful, we're going to ditch the old stuff, we want paintings like that. And Charles I hired Sir Anthony Van Dyck, a student of Rubens, to come and be the court painter. That is what we must aim for now. That was the art of its time, participating in those, tr those timeless principles, but expressed in such a way that it, it evangelized the culture. Um, cultural abstinence is just saying, uh, I, really, I, I'm not interested in, in what's going on. This is an internal process. I'm going to close my eyes and pray, and I'm not going to engage with the art or the culture either in prayer or in outside. Um, compromise, I don't know if I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but if we accept, for example, to take, just to take one example, that music and art can be the product of a secular culture and its form, as well as its words, should we say, its content, can communicate something bad at an intuitive level. We've just been discussing how the form of a building, the St. Giles Café, in, in, can communicate the cosmos and the heavenly liturgy, well, you can have the reverse. And if we take a popular culture simply because it's popular, but one that reflects the values of a secular culture, it doesn't matter what Christian words you put to it, it's going to, you've got a conflict, and ultimately it is undermining the faith. Uh, I would suggest that Christian rock is precisely that. Um, and 
The idea behind it, that's not to say it's all bad or all forms are bad. I'm sure it's more subtle and more complicated than I'm suggesting. But as a principle, you don't go to the secular culture and say, let's, that, let's use that form and make the content Christian. You need both. You need a content and a form that, that point us to that heavenly principle. Um, and when we do, it will be even more popular and even more powerful. Uh, this is, uh, I'm just about, I'm going to close off with this. This saying, and if I've got the Latin wrong, then I apologise, I don't speak Latin, so I think I got it right. Lex credendi, lex orandi. Uh, rule of faith, rule of prayer. It's, it's the way that the church fathers, going right back, used to express this connection between worship and what we believe. The most profound thing that affects our values Uh, Our core beliefs, our principles, um, is liturgy, is our worship. If you want to destroy a culture, you tinker with the liturgy. Because what you're doing is you're affecting what people believe at a deep level. That's how you destroy it. If you want to build a culture, you reform the liturgy so that it really does reinforce the values that are Christian. We have a great Pope at the moment who is doing just that and understands that, and he wrote about it in everything that he's done. In that book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, it's only 160 pages long, describes it. He even talks about Pythagoras and the, 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 uh, the link with, the, with classical culture, everything that I've talked about. Um, okay. Now, if culture reflects and influences our core values, our priorities and beliefs, um, then cultural reform starts with something that's more powerful than culture, the liturgy. Um, Education is important. That's why I'm here. (laughs) That's why I want to communicate these things to you. But ultimately, we can't educate everybody. That's not going to get the masses, I don't think. If it did, that's great. That would be fantastic. What I think education does is allow those who are going to create to understand their culture and ultimately this is what we're looking for is those who can speak to those who are not educated in the cultural things through the culture. Shakespeare was a wonderful playwright he was the popular playwright of his day um, and he has he incorporates so many of these timeless values of beauty, truth and goodness. Um, it's always the truth, that the, the, the good art, the beautiful art, the true art, if it's really good, will be popular too. There is a, there's a, there is a feeling of resignation. He, the Pope called that, that says, that, that, that wants to blame people for not being cultured enough and appreciating what I... Pre- That's totally the wrong approach. The answer is that we must look at ourselves and say, we have to produce something which catches their attention. That's why the Pope addressed artists. He didn't address the people and say, you've got to learn about things, you've got to be educated. He's saying to the artists, you've got to produce something which attracts those people um, and not, you can't expect them to understand what you're doing in some educated, cultured way. We're looking beyond that. Okay. How can we do this? So education, talks, of course. But worship, we open our souls. Uh, These values are impressed upon our souls uh, to the degree that we conform to them. And the huge gap 
in most people, maybe not everybody here, you're probably fine, but this is the thing that's pushed in uh, Second Vatican Council steadily. The liturgy of the hours really impresses upon our souls this rhythm of, for a start, you become so much aware of different feast days and seasons, but it is sanctifying the day. It's, it's, it basically, it's giving us grace to guide us in our daily activities which we need and inspiration. And furthermore, it's, it's forming us internally in this pattern of the cosmic principle um, in a way that adds so much. I'm assuming that the, the rest of the, the Mass and the, the commandments of the Church, if you like, are being followed. Study of Scripture, of course. In terms of art, we study old masters. We look at what they did. And so you not only analyze them, but you learn your art in conformity and humility, following the patterns of another. All traditional training involves copying with understanding old masters. And then we look at nature. So drawing and observation if you're an artist. But also the analysis, the quadrivium, the four ways, these disciplines in the traditional seven liberal arts, four paths. Geometry, harmony, cosmology, and arithmetic. This is not simply learning how to add up, or even Euclidean geometry, which I taught for a while at Thomas More College, as a logic class. This is about the study of these things with a view to perceiving the patterns that ex- and symmetries that exist with them, within them as a principle of beauty. It's, a, it's, it's not to put, lay aside the fact that they conform to logic. That's very important too. Um, but it's this principle of cosmic beauty which is the, why, you, why it would be studied. Okay. I, I don't think... I think I was going to go on. That's repeating. Yeah. I'll just leave that. Okay, so I'll stop there, I think. So thank you very much for... Thinking. Do you see in uh, the near future that the Catholic Church will have uh, artists as um, pat- will patronize artists the way uh, that Michelangelo and others were um, uh, patrons? Uh, yes. Uh, it depends how near is the near future, of course. But um, I, I think so. If you look at, uh, I'm going to talk about this a bit on Sunday, but if you look at iconographic art, um, that was established out of nothing. That wasn't a, an unbroken tradition going back to the church. But basically, about 50 years ago, um, some expatriate Russians, and largely expatriate Russians in Paris, looked at iconographic art, worked out what the principles were, and started to paint it. And they're so successful that all the things you hear when people talk about icons, though this goes back to the tradition, that what they're doing is reproducing what those Russians what their analysis was. And they then went on and painted and taught. Now, what you're beginning to see now... So, first of all, iconography, which is as much a Western uh, form as it is Eastern, um, is beginning to take root as well. Um, but you're also seeing a similar approach to those Russian expats who, who did a great job for icons occurring with the, the Baroque and the Gothic. We're about 50 years behind, um, and 
but it's beginning to happen. The skills are being taught now. People can paint in tempera. They're learning in these ateliers in Florence, and there's a lot of them in the U.S. Uh, what needs to happen now is this sort of thing where people understand it as a visual vocabulary of the faith. That, that hasn't happened in the naturalistic art yet, but it is happening. And so it may be a generation, or you know, but somebody will come along, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Can photography conform to these principles? And if so, how would that happen? How, I couldn't tell you. Uh, but yes, is the answer. It's just an, another tool for representing uh, the visual world. And uh, I, are you coming on Sunday? Okay. The, uh, if you, when we talk about naturalistic art, uh, you'll see that uh, according to the 17th century Baroque, the artists, they change the focus, they change the level of colour so that your eye is brought into key areas of the, of the painting and they're controlling the passage of the eye across the canvas. And they're doing it in such a way that it emphasises the natural hierarchy of being as well. So you don't have everything pointing to the cigarette butt on the ground because that's not what you're most interested in when you look at a scene. Okay, so. Now, in photography, you may do it in different ways, but the way that you compose a photograph... Um, remember that the image is being... Um, channeled through a camera and then now through a computer. And that, that can be controlled by somebody who knows what they're doing so that it's raised up to something good as much as it can be detrimental. Um, I would love to see photographers really exploring this and thinking about photography in this way. I'm not aware of anybody trying to analyse it in terms of these Christian principles, but I don't see why, in theory, it couldn't be done. Have you seen the principles of beauty that you've discussed expressed in any primitive art? Um, by primitive, are you talking about sort of African or something? How, 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 give me an example of primitive. Um, Pre-Christian? Well, certainly classical, ancient Greek, Roman. Um, you also see it uh, in um, other... Non-Christian civilizations, um, Islam, Chinese art—that the principles are very similar. They're not always identical, but they have a sense of proportion and harmony, and they might have a different symbolism. But yes, and in fact, the way that I found out about this is by people who have at the Prince Charles uh, established a school of traditional arts, um, which is very. Uh, 20th century in the sense that uh, it's relativist. So he says that there is one God and many faiths and they're different equivalent paths of the same mountain. Okay, So absolutely not Christian. Even though he will have iconographers there and Christians there. Um, but those people, sometimes they call themselves perennialists or universalists um, who are a little wacky and new agey, they have done lots and lots of research looking for the similarities, because that's their premise, that the, 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 the common elements are, are the truth. Um, so you have to be very discerning when you look at what they do. But they've highlighted, I think, quite genuinely, a huge amounts of common ground here that just appeals to the, naturally to the human person. Yeah. If, if I could just add one thing as we're continuing our study at the Institute, that that what Mr. Clayton is pointing out is a, is a pattern 
that's found in objective reality. And one thing that struck me during his talk was the approach of uh, not only architects, musicians, and artists uh, that realized that they were subject to an objective order and how contrary that is to our modern way of thinking that places me first, and uh, which is ultimately one of the purposes of our whole series on beauty, not just to see what nice art and nice architecture is, but to realize that there is an objective order that we conform ourselves to. And when we realize that, then we'll realize that there's an objective way of truth and an objective way of acting, a moral order by which we act. And there's an entire order within creation by which we live. And then we will begin to live the way God wants us to live again. Can you recommend a book on Catholic symbols? Um, I can't because I can't remember. You're thinking about the lily represents this. And the... um, there are plenty of them around and actually that's one of the things that I'm not that interested if I paint a picture I just go and look them up or even Google's you know <laughs> um, but I'm more interested in the form than I and it's not that I'm uninterested in the content but I think there's a lot of information about that and most books on Christian art tend to focus on that side of it rather than what I've been talking about and what I'll be talking about on Sunday which is the the, the very style of it um, uh, which doesn't really answer. It's a long way of saying no. I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did uh, Pope Benedict XVI's letter to artists uh, add anything to John Paul II's letter in terms of where artists should take their work in, in achieving beauty in a Catholic perspective? Um, I. You're talking about the Pope's address. Particularly, or just the Pope's general writings. Okay, I, I can't remember from the address, um, but what I would say is that he was much more specific uh, than John Paul II was in highlighting those three liturgical traditions. Now he did that in the spirit of the liturgy. I don't know whether it was in the address, but um, I, in fact, I even got one person. I write for the new liturgical movement. I got one person to say, "Will you stop going on about these three traditions?" And it makes me think, as a teacher, the message is getting through. It's got to the point of irritating people. But these traditions of the the, the Baroque, the Gothic, and the iconographic. John Paul II was much more open, for example, to the High Renaissance. Um, and I, my feeling is that Pope Benedict, uh, John Paul II, is a great philosopher and understands beauty. But Pope Benedict has a much greater sense of the art and the culture as linked to the liturgy than John Paul, even than John Paul II. Um, and that is something that basically I, I, would, I picked up on, is these three figurative traditions, um, which he stated pretty clearly in this. And it, what's interesting is this huge omission for many people of the High Renaissance. He's saying this is not an authentic Catholic liturgical tradition. So Michelangelo... Raphael, only to the degree that they conform to what came later in the Baroque, are they really genuinely liturgical forms. Thank you for going on about the octave and how it gets divided. And uh, I think you said that everybody around the world and every culture 
recognizes that or, or is drawn to it. I, but, I mean, I think that, like, Indian sitar music is based on a different scale. Or They have different subdivisions. And you get quarter notes and this sort of thing. But I did ask whether an Indian could hear that this note sounds the same as that note. And I was told, yes, they do. Their scales are different. Um, and so they do, you do, as I say, I know that in India you get, I think it's quarter notes rather than, we, get, we have whole and half. So it's not as if everything is absolutely identical. I'm not suggesting that. Um, but the investigations I made, if you play you know, this note on the piano and this note on the piano, they will hear, assuming that ear, the mechanism of the ear is fine, that one sounds the same as the other. So, you find beauty in the interval you mentioned? Yes, that, that, that if you run up the scale and you say, does this go with this and does this go with this, yes, there's a consensus of what I've been told. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Clayton. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.